John says this, final words, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, what? What good news this morning that because of your son Jesus, because we're secure in your son Jesus, we can go into perhaps those dark crevices of our heart that we've long neglected or ignored or chosen not to look at. We can go in safety and in assurance knowing that you love us and you have us and that anything you want to root out or destroy that is sinful or idolatrous in those parts of us that we've hidden away, we know that we can do that in the safety of knowing that we're loved by you. And that though it's hard and difficult and even painful, you will not leave us nor forsake us. Indeed, we are sealed with your Holy Spirit. And so I pray as we undergo this process today of unearthing our idols, those things we worship, that we would go in the confidence of knowing that we are in your son, Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, Simone had it all. Uh, the face of Aubrey Hepburn. Uh, she moved like Madonna. She was an actress of breathtaking presence. She overshadowed every other actor she shared the stage with. It seemed uh, that Simone was too good to be true. And of course, she was. In the 2002 film, Simone, Simone is an actress without flaws, created for the silver screen by a sophisticated computer code. Simone, code for simulation one, is not a person per se, but a computer program created by a director as the perfect leading lady. And towards the end of this film, as Simone's fame skyrockets and surpasses that of her creator, the director decides to come clean about who Simone is. But it's too late. The unreal has become the real. And in one scene in particular where the director confesses uh, this to his ex-wife, that he created Simone. His ex-wife looks condescendingly at him. Oh, poor, poor Victor. No, she made you. The lie is complete. And the movie ends with Simone's announcement that she'll be heading into politics. Uh, one commentator describes what's happening in the movie like this. Simone, she becomes so idolized by her fans and thus by her creator that her unreality becomes a controlling force over them. Her unreality becomes a controlling force over them. In other words, people saw in Simone something they very much wanted for themselves. So much so, they're willing to believe a lie, to live in an unreality if it meant Simone was there as well. And Richard Lintz, the commentator who talked about it like this, he uses the story of Simone as an introduction in his book on idolatry because the story neatly summarizes for us this morning 
what the Bible is talking about when it talks about idols. Idols. See, for us on this call this morning, there's a great diversity here. A great diversity of experience when it comes to things like idols. Idolatry means different people, to di- different things to different people on this call. For, for some of you, you grew up in a Buddhist or, or a Hindu home, and perhaps there was a literal statue at the front of your house uh, or an image at the front of your house, and you put fruit or food by that image or incense burned at the base of that image. Maybe that's a vision or your lived experience of idolatry. I can remember I was in North Korea um, over five, six years ago now, and I can remember we're driving on the highway, and suddenly, no one else is on this highway, suddenly our van slows down to like a crawl, and it's strange. And I see other cars doing the same thing, slowing down to a, a crawl, and I look to my right, and to my right is the Mansu Grand Hill Monument. You, you can Google it later if, if you'd like. At the Mansu Grand Hill Monument, there are two 60-foot-tall bronze statues. And on those statues lay wreaths at the bottom of them and people bowing down to them. For some of us, this is what comes into our mind when we think of idolatry. And we find this kind of idolatry all over the Bible. Big statues, right? Wooden carvings even whole temples dedicated to these small g gods. And and we see this is a big problem, not just for the nations, but for Israel. Israel is prone to idolatry. Even in the New Testament, when Paul goes to Athens, we read that his heart, this is in Acts 17, his heart is provoked, having seen the idolatry of Athens. Now, we might be tempted at this point to think back on ancient Israel or, or, or the you know, ancient Athens, and, and laugh at them, right? How could they think like this, right? How could they believe that burning some incense or some grain could, could actually change things? But before we judge them this morning, I want us to press pause. And I want us to consider a few things. These sacrifices to gods were always a means to an end, right? They were always a means to an end, A sacrifice to Aphrodite to be beautiful, right? A sacrifice to Artemis, or sorry, Ares, for victory in war, for political gain. A sacrifice to Artemis for wealth and fertility. And a sacrifice to Hephaestus for skill in craftsmanship. These sacrifices were always a means to an end, to get something. And put that way, well, don't we do the exact same thing? We might not attach formal Greek names to our gods, but many of us sacrifice our families on the altar of success, our sexuality on the altar of desire, other people even on the altar of power. See, in the Bible, idolatry is not fundamentally about bronze statues, but about our hearts. Uh, In a great book entitled Idols of the Heart, Elise Fitzpatrick, she summarizes the Bible's teaching on idolatry like this. This is really helpful as we begin this morning. Listen, idols aren't just stone statues. No, she says, they are loves, thoughts, desires, longings, and expectations that we worship in place of the true God. 
They are the things, she says, we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. And idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father in search of what we think we need. See, here's the point. In worshiping these things, money, sex, power, control, what is ultimately happening, what is fundamentally happening is we are substituting the false in place of the real. This is the danger of idolatry this morning. That which we've created, our own personal Simones, as it were, they control us. They blind us. And if the Bible is to be believed, they lead us ultimately to a place of death. I'm convinced there's nothing more important for us to consider this Sunday morning. Here's how I want us to examine idolatry this morning as we look at the end of 1 John and this topic more generally. The first thing is this. We're going to see first the falsehood of idolatry. The falsehood of idolatry. And second, we'll see this, the God who sees, hears, and speaks. Just two points today, the falsehood of idolatry and the God who sees and hears and speaks. And so first, the falsehood of idolatry. This word idol, which John uses this morning, is maybe surprising to us. John hasn't mentioned, if you've been following us this whole series, John hasn't talked about idols so far, Right? He hasn't been talking about, you know, idol worship uh, like Paul saw in Athens. He hasn't been dealing with that with this group of Christians. What he has, however, been talking about are false ideas about who God is, right? If you're, if you're just joining us now on this last sermon in this series, so far John has been countering ideas like this. Jesus is not God, but a mere man. John's been coming up against ideas like this. If you're truly chosen of God, it doesn't matter how you live, right? Or how you treat other people. It's all about you. John's been refuting ideas like this. You can have God. You can have the Father without having the Son, without the way of Jesus. There are many paths, we could say. These are the teachings which have led people in the communities in which John has influence to walk astray. These are the teachers and their ideas that are the wolves threatening the sheep, as it were. And this false teaching about who God is, this is what John has in mind when he uses this word idols. We have to see that this morning. False teaching about who God is is what John has in mind when he uses this word idol or idols in 1 John 5, 21. And let, let me show you how that happens. Th this word that we find in the Greek can, yes, mean an image or likeness or a statue, what we typically think of when we think of like idols, but it can also mean something like this, something that is false, unreal, phantom-like. And if we think about it, these two meanings, image, idol, statue, right, image, and false, unreal, phantom-like, these two meanings have a lot of overlap, don't they? They're not unrelated. Anytime we worship as ultimate, as God, 
something or someone that is not the true God, we subject ourselves to a false reality. And if you don't believe me, let me illustrate. In January 2020, can you think about what you were doing? If you're like me, I'm a planner. Some of you are annoyed by my planning, but I'm a planner. It's who the Lord has made me to be, and I'm not ashamed of that. I was planning in January 2020. I was scheming out my year. These are the courses I'll take. These are the sermon series we'll teach through. These are the vacations we'll go on. These are the plans we'll have. These are the parties we'll throw. This and this and this. I was planning. Then, of course, our current reality, our new reality, kicks in. And restriction after restriction is implemented. And slowly but surely, those things get crossed off the list. Maybe you're like me and you found that slowly our control was taken from us. And from this, this very clear fact emerged, our supposed power and control over our life is a mere illusion. What, what, what 200 years ago people took for granted because of the short life expectancy and decreased wealth and all these things, what, what, what people took for granted for most of human history, we now thought was just true. We have power and control over our lives, but really it's an illusion. It's a phantom. It's a false reality. See, when we entrust ourselves to power, control, money, sex, whatever it is, it is inevitable that at some point, maybe not today, but at some point, that chair will be pulled out from underneath us. We'll find out that the ground we were standing on was not as firm as we thought it once was. And I want to say that this is because idolatry fundamentally lies to us about three things. Three things. The first very fundamental thing that idolatry lies to us about is who God is. Idolatry lies to us about who God is. I don't know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. I don't know if you believe in God this morning or not or what you believe in. I'm, I'm glad that you're here and you're with us. But whether you believe in God or not this morning, we all live our life in view of what we believe the ultimate or best thing or small g God to be. We all live our life in view of what theologians and philosophers have called meta-narratives or overarching stories, right? stories that control what we do. And in Vancouver, there is a very prevalent, very powerful meta-narrative or overarching story that we all live in. And this is how it goes. Ready? Stop me if you've heard this one before. If we are kind, right, that's the first thing, if we are kind and we work hard and we're earnest enough, authentic enough, genuine enough, what will happen? Well, things will work out for us, right? We'll get the job we want, in the house we want, with the friends we want, with the salary we deserve, and life will be good. This is the overarching story that exists in our city. Again, it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not. We all, we all ascribe to some sort of meta-narrative in our life. And it's important to say this, whatever that story is, ultimately we live our lives in service of that story. Don't we? Ask the men and women 
who are killing themselves working 70, 80-hour work weeks, what story they live in. It comes from somewhere. And we must say this morning, as we come to God's Word, as we come to the Scriptures, we find a different story. A story that does not begin with you or me, but with God. A God who is infinitely worthy of our worship. In fact, he's jealous for our worship. Maybe you know this. You've heard this passage before, but the second commandment famously reads like this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Listen, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, God is not jealous because he, he's petty or, or needy. Right? He's not a teenager sulking in his room because, you know, his boyfriend or, or you know, whatever, her girlfriend, they broke up. Like, that's, not, that's not what's going on here. No. He is jealous first because he alone is worthy of glory, worthy of worship, worthy of our whole lives. But also, see this, to worship any other God would be to align ourselves with what is false. And as we've seen, when we align ourselves with what is false, what is untrue, it will ultimately fail us. And this leads us to the second great lie of idolatry, that in serving your idol, you'll find freedom. We love to talk about freedom, right? We're big freedom people as a culture, as a society. We love freedom, right? Freedom of whatever, you fill in the blank. And the Bible talks about freedom, uh, when Paul, he writes to the church in Thessalonica, he begins his letter by commending the church on the example that they set to other believers. And he writes this in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Listen to what Paul says. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, one of the big lies of our culture's big idols, autonomous individualism, is that you can exist as a neutral person, as a neutral person, not in the service or in the worship of any idol. I'm not a religious person, right? We have the rise of the nuns, right? Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, right? I'm this religiously neutral person, but what Paul outlines for us in this passage, if we think about it, is very much the same thing that Bob Dylan would sing many years later. Do you know the song? He goes, it goes like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. Listen to what Dylan writes. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes. Indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. See, the question for Paul and, and for Bob Dylan is, is the same. It's not a matter of if you will serve someone or something, but if that service will lead to freedom and if that service will lead to flourishing. 
And so far in 1 John, if you take anything from this little jam-packed theological book, 1 John, John's told us over and over and over again that only, only when we live our lives in service to King Jesus do we find life and life eternal. We read in 1 John 5, 20 last week, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. You hear that twice, true, true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Idolatry whispers to us, this is freedom to be liberated sexually, even as it puts on the chain. Idolatry whispers to us, this is freedom to get as much stuff and money as you can while you can, even while the straight jacket is tightened around us. Idolatry whispers to us, this is freedom that everyone you know will respect you, how smart you are how capable you are, how kind and thoughtful you are, all the while the cell door closes. And you might think I'm being dramatic, speaking hyperbolically. No. I beg you to consider with me this morning the prison that your idolatry has locked you in. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, author Tim Keller writes this, he writes that today, we may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. He says, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. See, throughout the Bible, we see this, this dynamic at work, and it goes like this, ready? We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. I've used this example before, but think of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. He idolizes power, right? He idolizes the ring of power and it physically transforms him. It malforms him. It destroys him. He becomes like what he worships. See, the great tragedy of the slavery of idolatry is that it is self-imposed. And while once, perhaps there was a time when we would rail against our captivity, Slowly, it has become an imprisonment of our own devising. We heard this, didn't we, in our call to worship from Psalm 115? The idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Now listen, Christ City, verse 8 of Psalm 115. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So idolatry then is not only an offense against a holy and jealous God, it is also a dehumanizing 
experience in the truest sense of the word. Idolatry is dehumanizing. It changes us into something less than we were created to be. Do you see that, Christ City? Which leads to the third lie of idolatry, that in serving your idol, and maybe as I'm talking, you're beginning to get a sense of what your idol is, that in serving your idol, you'll find freedom and flourishing and life and satisfaction. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and mathematician, I think he wrote truthfully when he said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. The will never takes the least step but to this object, happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. All men, all women seek happiness. See, we worship idols, not because we're stupid, no, but because like all people everywhere, we want to be happy. We want to be satisfied. We want the hurting to stop for something to fill the void. And this search for happiness is not a character flaw or a deep-rooted deficiency in us as people. No, but it's a deep-rooted desire that will destroy us if not properly satisfied. See, the good news this morning is that in the Bible, there are over 2,700 passages containing words like joy and happiness 2,700 passages containing words like gladness and merriment and pleasure and cheer and laughter and delight and jubilation and feasting and exaltation and celebration. The Bible is deeply concerned with our happiness. But when we seek this happiness in any other God, in any other thing, we will, I know this, and you know this, be spit out dissatisfied. But when we seek our happiness in him, we find for the first time satisfaction, wholeness. Just a few weeks ago, John said, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Again, life here is not just life forever, but is a qualitative thing. It's now life, a kind of living now. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So before we turn, look at our last point this morning. I want to just ask one question. One question. When you examine your life and you acknowledge there are things more important to you things you love more than the one true God and his son Jesus. When you examine your life and your idolatry, how is that working out for you? How is that working out for you? As Christians, we don't go to a utilitarian ethic like this to start. We begin with to worship the true God is right. To not worship him is wrong. But at some point, it's fair to ask, 
How's that working out for you? If John, if Jesus is to be believed, life itself will elude us until we wholeheartedly commit to finding it in our loving Father alone. It's to this God, this Father, we turn now as we, for the last time in the series, look at 1 John. This is point number two, the God who sees and hears and speaks. Read again, 1 John 5, 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. At, at, at this point, uh, three quarters of the way through the sermon, <laughs> it, it's worth asking, like, why does John end this way? It seems random, doesn't it? Like, nod your head with me if this seems random. Am I, am I am by myself with this? Thank you. A few of you are nodding your heads. I appreciate it. It seems random. It seems like John's like, okay, like, I wrote all this stuff so far. And like, oh, yeah, like, by the way, also, like, idols, right? Watch out for idols. Keep yourself, right? The word keep also can be translated defend, like, defend against, right? This, just, just, just watch out for them, okay? Uh, that's it. Okay, we're done letter. Good, we're done. But I think if we understand what John is doing here, especially in light of the beginning of 1 John, it should really like blow our minds. See, while material idols can act as a placeholder for our fleshy desires, or even demonic spiritual entities, the idols themselves are, are nothing. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is drawing a clear line in that passage concerning the church there, saying, listen, church in Corinth you cannot participate in the Lord's Supper and also go and party at these like idol feasts, right? You can't go to like this temple and, you know, get your drink on and your food on and also go to like take the Lord's Supper. Like you can't do both of those things, right? Right? Why? Well, Paul says clearly this in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Listen, or that an idol is anything? No. No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. See, an idol, even in the spiritual realm, is nothing. Nothing. I'll say it again. An idol, even in the spiritual realm, is nothing. And by nothing, I mean powerless. It cannot hear your cries for salvation. An idol cannot speak to you words of true comfort and true hope. An idol does not see you in your moment of great need and despair and meet you there. An idol is nothing. Ah, John says, but there is one who is something, or rather, there is one who is someone. Do you remember how we began this letter? All those weeks ago, I know you remember 1 John 1, 1 to 3. How did John begin this very letter? Listen, Christ City. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, listen, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest 
and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made again manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what is John doing with this seemingly throwaway line at the end of this letter? He's reminding us. He's reminding you. He's reminding me that while all these other images lie, there is one who truthfully, perfectly images God, who invites us into the reality of who God is, and it's his son, Jesus. Jesus, who said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus, who frees us to serve God, to flourish in that service, and to find our rest in him. It's because of Jesus. The Son of God died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, that you and I can no longer be prisoners to our idols, the things that dominate our hearts. That you and I are able to overcome the gods who are deaf, blind, and mute through the Father who sends the Son, who hears, sees, and speaks. Little children, beloved children, Keep yourself from idols. Do this by again and again trusting that Jesus is our all-satisfying Lord. One scholar, he writes this, Keeping ourselves from idols requires more than mere suspicion of motives. Idolatry is not unmasked, is unmasked rather, not by a sheer unmitigated self-criticism. Idolatry, he says, requires a light that illuminates its true character. And throughout the canon, that's the Bible, that light is none other than the true and living God. Friends, we need Jesus to break into our darkness if we are to unmask these idols. The question this morning is not, do you have idols? It's, do you know what those idols are? If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you don't know what they are, let me ask this. Some diagnostic questions for you. You can close your eyes and think about this or write them down if you have a pen and paper in front of you. Where do your thoughts go when there is no one else demanding your time or attention? Where where do your thoughts wander off to? Is it to like the boat on the lake? Or like in the woods somewhere away from like screaming children for a moment? Or like, is that at the top of of, of the executive board? Like having power over a lot of different organizations? Where does your mind wander off to? Where do you go when you daydream? Perhaps more tangibly, where does your money go? Seriously, where, where does it go? Where does your time go? Do you you spend all day going back and forth about what blinds you should buy? Because how you look and how you're perceived is so, so important to you. How about this? When do you get really upset, angry, or despair towards God? 
Is it when he doesn't answer your prayer for more leisure time? Is it when he doesn't answer your prayer for a spouse? Or success in business? Is it when others publicly or privately slander you and God seems to be doing nothing about it? Again, Keller talks about this well when he says this. When you pray and work for something and you don't get it and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, and he says this, listen, then, then you have found your real God. Then you have found your real God. Christian, follower of Jesus, let me encourage you this morning. John Calvin said our hearts are idle factories, which means we will never reach the bottom of this pit from which idols are born. We just won't in this life. We won't, oh, they're all gone. Excavated them all, got, got rid of them all. It won't happen. Not in this life, at least. But what will happen as you grow in Christian maturity is that you will learn to dig deeper. Now, Doug Crystal, who leads our biblical counseling ministry, he talks about this like peeling layers of an onion again and again, one layer, deeper, deeper, and deeper. And so, Christian, let me encourage you this morning, do not be discouraged. Do not give up. Keep on digging. Don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Keep on digging. How? Well, this is the second thing. Christian, set your mind wholly on Christ. I just get the sense this morning that we need to hear this. There is no life, there is no joy in half-hearted Christian devotion. Let me say that again. There is no life in half-hearted Christian devotion. There is no joy amidst conflicted desires. Commit yourself today to do whatever it takes to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And know that in Jesus, because of Jesus, he can do this and birth this in you. That's to the Christians on this call. But maybe you're here and you're on the fence about Jesus. You're on the fence about God. And maybe you're, you're convinced that he's not for you. <laughs> can I plead with you? Can I beg of you something? There is only one who sees and hears and speaks. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, who is the exact image of God, who does not lie to us about who God is. Jesus, who has come to truly set the captives free. Only in Christ is there freedom. Jesus, who alone satisfies the deep longing and desires of our heart. Trust in Jesus. Again, I will say, trust in Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I am fully aware that today we've done perhaps more excavating than rebuilding. More digging up than dealing with. And so, Father, I thank you for your church. 
I thank you that we do not wrestle through these things, these idols on our own. We don't seek to put them to death on our own. Not only have we been given your spirit, but we've been given your church, your people, to speak truth into our life, to come alongside us as we seek to put these things to death, to crucify them. Again, I am so thankful that we don't start this journey, we don't continue on this journey in our own strength or, or, or on our own efforts. No, you empower us by your Spirit. Your Spirit illuminates those things which are opposed to you that we might put them to death. Father, we know you do all these things for our good and for your glory. And so it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, let me invite you now as we respond uh, to respond in a few ways this morning. We'll sing, and Josh is going to lead us in a song. It's a song many of you might be familiar with, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And during that song, let me just invite you to think of the things which have occupied your imagination in the season, the things you really love, the idols that are really in, in control. And if you'd like, I want you to envision turning your gaze away from those things and towards Christ. Turning your eyes away from the things of this world and towards him who alone satisfies. So we're going to sing. I invite you to take that time just to meditate on what the Lord is speaking to you this morning, specifically about these idols. We'll sing. We'll We'll, we'll give. Not only is giving something we do out of a joyous place of worship, giving is a great antidote to the idolatry of greed in our life. If you struggle with greed this morning, with the worship of money, of mammon, one of the best ways we can combat that idolatry, that worship, is by giving generously and joyfully, not only to the church, but to all. So let me encourage you to put to death that idolatry this morning as you respond in worship. We'll take the Lord's Supper this morning as well. In a second, I'll read the passage from 1 Corinthians. And then finally, we'll pray. I want to encourage you this morning, if the Lord has highlighted something in your heart, in your life, that you need to repent of, don't hurry off this call. Don't sort of, you know, close the screen and, and run away and just forget about it. Confess it to a brother or sister in Christ someone who's going to remain on this call to pray with you and for you and encourage you to walk in wholeness in your walk with the Lord. Stay on this call, receive prayer. Read with me 1 Corinthians 10, 14 to 17. And there Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Run, 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 run from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, remember, there are only two tables to choose from. We either renounce all idols and freely drink of the cup of life expressed in the communion meal, or we eat from the table of idols, which Paul will go on to say, as we read, is actually the table of demons. Therefore, if you don't know Jesus, we'd ask that you not participate in the communion meal. We ask you to allow this time to pass. However, if Jesus is Lord of your life, then take the cup, the juice, the wine, take the bread, the cracker, 
eat and drink and be satisfied. Find in Jesus, finally, one who is worthy of your worship. Let's respond together, Christ said he.